0: This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Blueberry offers the best media hosting, accurate listening stats. They're all new PowerPress Deluxe sites, a no setup WordPress website for your podcast, and it comes with all of the necessary links to share your show with the world built right in. Head over to dream to sign up for media hosting, a PowerPress Deluxe site Get that podcast you've been dreaming about started, and get your first month for free. That's www.orbitaljigsaw.com slash dream. And now, on to the show. Today, March 31st, 2018, marks the 25th anniversary of the death of Brandon Lee. I had released a bonus episode on Patreon when I was working on the two-part series on the Twilight Zone disaster, as both stories involved tragic movie set accidents. So today, I've decided to not only release that episode for everyone to have access to, I'm actually re-recording it with hopefully better sound quality. So, without further ado, The Tale of Brandon Lee. When I was putting together the two-part episode on the Twilight Zone movie set Helicopter Crash, which killed veteran actor Vic Morrow and two children, Micah Lee and Renee Chen. I referenced several other cases in which people died either behind the scenes or in front of the cameras during the making of either a movie or a television show. One of those deaths I referenced twice. One that really saddened me when I heard about it. I wasn't even 20 years old yet. However, the movie that was being filmed, The Crow, I had been looking forward to seeing it. I was kind of going through an undead phase of sorts at the time, back in the early 90s. I had read all those books by Anne Rice, The Vampire Chronicles, The Vampire Lestat, The Tale of the Body Thief, Lasher, all of those. Those of you who follow me on social media know that I'm not that much of a book or movie buff anymore. And I'm definitely too chicken to watch very many horror movies, if any at all. But in the 90s, I did go through that phase. I had gone to see Bram Stoker's Dracula in 1992 after having read the book. And I'm pretty sure that was the first horror movie I'd ever seen. The same year that I saw The Crow, I saw Interview with the Vampire. And all of these movies were really hard for me to sit through because I cringe at blood and stuff. But The Crow was definitely a standout. The irony of the film was not lost on me, as I'm sure it wasn't on many of you who've seen it. There is this sad melancholy that hangs over you through the whole movie. Everything Brandon does in the movie is underscored by his death in real life. Everything on the screen, and everything he says about death and revenge it added another level of grief to the whole thing. Between the storyline in the movie and the making of it, I am really excited to look back upon this film, especially the life of the man who portrayed the crow, Brandon Bruce Lee. Brandon Lee was born February 1st, 1965, in the city of Oakland, California. To parents Bruce Lee, a martial arts expert and actor, and Linda Lee Cadwell. He was the son of Cantonese opera singer Lee Hoi Chuen, and he had one sister, Shannon Lee. Brandon's father was born Lee Jun Fan in the Chinatown district of San Francisco, California on November 27, 1940, but was raised in Hong Kong until he was into his late teens. Professionally, he was known as Bruce Lee, he was a Hong Kong and American actor, director, martial artist, and instructor, and the founder of a martial art known as Jeet Kune Do, which is one of the washu or kung fu styles of martial arts. Bruce continues to be widely considered by other martial arts experts and those in the community as well as critics and in the media as one of the most influential martial artists of all time as well as a prolific pop culture icon of the 20th century. Bruce Lee is noted as having a significant influence on the way Asians were represented in American films. He was introduced to the film industry by his father, who himself had appeared in several films as a child actor. When Bruce was 18, he moved to the United States in order to pursue his college education at the University of Washington, Seattle. It was also during this time that Bruce began teaching martial arts. Soon, he was making martial art films in both Hong Kong as well as in Hollywood productions, bringing the genre of traditional martial art films to all new levels of popularity. This, in turn, sparked a tremendous interest in Chinese martial arts in the United States in the 1970s. It would be Bruce Lee films that influenced a shift in martial arts and martial art movies all over the world. He is best known for movies such as The Big Boss, Fist of Fury, Way of the Dragon, Enter the Dragon, and The Game of Death. Bruce was truly an iconic figure. On May 10, 1973, he suddenly collapsed while working on a dialogue session for Enter the Dragon in Hong Kong. He was experiencing seizures and headaches, so he was rushed to the hospital where he was diagnosed with cerebral edema, which is an excessive accumulation of fluid in the spaces of the brain, which was causing it to swell. Doctors were able to reduce the swelling through the use of medications. A month and a half later, on July 20th, in Hong Kong still with plans to have dinner with actor George Lazenby, with whom Bruce had plans on making a movie with. According to Bruce's wife, he met with producer Raymond Chow around 2 p.m. that day in their home to discuss the making of the film Game of Death. They spoke for about two hours, and then they all drove together to the home of an acquaintance of Bruce's, a Taiwanese actress named Betty Ting Pei. They further discussed the script of the Game of Death at her home, Then Raymond Chow parted ways to attend a dinner meeting. Bruce's wife then said he was complaining of a headache again and that Betty Tang gave him an Equagesic, a medication that contained aspirin and Meprobamate, which is a type of tranquilizer. And then he went to lay down and he never woke up. When he was checked up on, he was unresponsive and not waking up. A doctor was called to the apartment who spent approximately 10 minutes attempting to revive Bruce before calling an ambulance to take him to the hospital. But Bruce was dead upon arrival. He was only 32 years old. Although there are several conspiracy theories and rumors swirling around Bruce's death, including that his family had been cursed by the triads, an autopsy ultimately determined that his brain had swollen a considerable amount and it was surmised that he had died from an allergic reaction to the medication that Betty Ting had given to him and his death was ruled death by misadventure. Brandon was only eight years old when his father suddenly died. He had spent his early years in Hong Kong following in the footsteps of his iconic father studying and training in martial arts. But after his father's death, his mother moved him and his sister back to the United States, where they settled in Seattle, Washington. It seems that Brandon struggled growing up. His family moved around a lot after his father's death. He had trouble coping with being the son of a martial arts legend, a legend likely made larger than life due to Bruce's untimely death. He went to Chadwick Private School on the Palo Verde Peninsula in California but he was expelled for insubordination. More specifically, he drove his car backwards down the school's hill. He then attended Bishop Montgomery High School in Torrance, California for about a year, but ended up receiving his GED when he was 18. Brandon then attended Emerson College in Boston, Massachusetts, where he majored in theater. But he quickly found out that college just wasn't really for him. Acting was definitely a passion of his. One year after that, he moved to New York City where he took acting lessons at the Lee Strasbourg Theater and Film Institute. He also became a part of the American New Theater group founded by his friend, John Lee Hancock. Brandon tried early on to stay away from getting involved in any films that centered around martial arts, but eventually he would go on to embrace it. When it came to martial arts, Brandon was instructed mostly by his father's former top students. He returned to Los Angeles in 1985, where he gained work as a script reader, and he also had an uncredited cameo in an action film entitled Crime Killer. He was eventually asked to audition for a role by casting director Lynn Stallmaster, and he was able to land his very first credited role in Kung Fu, the movie. It was a feature-length television movie which was a follow-up to the 1970s television series Kung Fu. Incidentally, Brandon's father had been originally slated to play the leading role in the 70s Kung Fu TV series, if not for Bruce's death. Anyway, it aired on ABC on Brandon's 21st birthday in 1986. Later that same year, Brandon landed his first leading role in a Hong Kong action-crime thriller, entitled Legacy of Rage, the only film Brandon made in Hong Kong. He was very well received by the Hong Kong moviegoers, and he was nominated for a Hong Kong Film Award for Best New Performer for his role in 1987. He next starred in a television pilot entitled Kung Fu, The Next Generation, which aired on CBS's Summer Playhouse and was another incarnation of the Kung Fu TV series of the 1970s. Brandon also made a guest appearance alongside Pat Morita in an episode of the short-lived television series O'Hara. He also started filming his first English-language B-action movie called Laser Mission. It was filmed on a really low budget in South Africa and was released only in the European market in 1990. In 1991, Brandon starred alongside Dolph Lundgren in a buddy cop action movie entitled Showdown in Little Tokyo. This would mark his first studio film, and it would be his American film debut. Brandon would go on to sign a multi-film deal with 20th Century Fox in 1991. In 1992, Brandon landed his first starring role in an action thriller, Rapid Fire and he was on pace to finish two more films for the studio that same year. Brandon landed the lead role of Eric Draven in the film adaptation of The Crow, which was a popular underground comic book series. Brandon had also signed up to complete two sequels to The Crow as well. This movie was going to finally be Brandon's breakout role. Before I move on, I wanted to lay out the plot of The Crow for any of you out there listening who haven't seen the film or read the comic books. The story begins with Brandon's character, Eric Draven, resurrecting from his grave one year after he and his fiancée are murdered on the eve of their wedding. His soul had been escorted to the next world by a crow. But when a spirit is unhappy in the next world because of unfinished business on Earth, the crow will bring him back. So, on that one-year anniversary of their murders, on Halloween Eve, Eric Draven reappears on Earth with a vow to seek vengeance on those who committed the murders, along with the kingpin who ordered them killed. Eric is haunted by flashbacks of the murder of himself and his fiancée, and he, led by the crow, wanders the dark rainy midnight streets on this mission. He applies makeup onto his face and sets out to find those responsible for their deaths. And since he is already dead, nothing can kill him. On March 31st, 1993, with a little more than two weeks left to finish the filming of The Crow, Brandon died of an accidental gunshot wound to the abdomen at a filming studio in Wilmington, North Carolina. He was 28 years old. In the scene in which Brandon was accidentally shot, his character walked into his apartment and discovered that his fiancé was being beaten and raped by some unsavory characters. A forty-four Magnum revolver was aimed at Brandon as he walked into the room. A previous scene using the same gun called for inert dummy cartridges fitted with bullets but without powder or primer to be loaded into the revolver for close-up scenes. For film scenes that utilize a revolver where bullets are visible from the front and do not require the gun to actually be fired, dummy cartridges are provided for the realistic appearance of actual rounds. Instead of purchasing commercial dummy cartridges, The film's prop crew created their own by pulling the bullets from the live rounds, dumping the powder charge, and then reinserting the bullets. However, they unknowingly left a live primer in place at the rear of the cartridge. At some point during filming, the revolver was discharged with one of those improperly deactivated cartridges in the chamber, setting off the primer with enough force to drive that bullet partway into the barrel where it became stuck, a condition known as a squib load. The prop crew either failed to notice this or failed to recognize the potential danger of this. In the fatal scene, which was to have the gun to be fired at Brandon from a distance of approximately 12 to 15 feet or 3.5 to 4.5 meters away from him, the dummy cartridges were exchanged with blank rounds, which have a live powder charge and a primer but no bullets, therefore allowing for the gun to be fired without an actual projectile exiting the barrel. But since the bullet from the dummy round was already trapped in the barrel, this resulted in a forty-four Magnum bullet to be fired out of it with pretty much the same force as if the gun had been loaded with a live round. This projectile struck Brandon in the abdomen, causing the mortal wound. He was rushed to the hospital where he underwent approximately six hours of emergency surgery and received 60 units of blood. But these attempts to save Brandon's life proved unsuccessful. He was pronounced dead a little after one o'clock in the afternoon on March 31st. He was 28 years old. An investigation into Brandon's death was conducted by the North Carolina police. It was soon revealed that the scene in which Brandon was killed, he had walked through a doorway carrying a bag of groceries, and the gun fired at him with the fatal projectile was shot by actor Michael Massey, playing a villain named Fun Boy in the film. At the moment of the shooting, Brandon pulled a hidden trigger behind the grocery bag in his arms that set off what's called a squib, or a small explosive device designed to create the appearance of the grocery bag bursting when struck by a bullet. After setting off the squib, Brandon suddenly collapsed on the set, bleeding profusely from the right side of his abdomen. Initially, there was speculation that the explosion of the squib so close to Brandon's body caused this injury. But a detective with the Wilmington Police Department, who was the first officer at the scene, stated that Brandon's injury appeared to him to be a gunshot wound not a wound from an explosive. The detectives reviewed the videotape made of the scene during the filming, which showed that the right side of Brandon's body was in line with the angle of the pistol that was fired for the scene. Also, after detectives arrived at the set, technicians from the movie set had unloaded the gun and placed it, and the spent shell, of a blank round into a plastic bag. Detective stated that after speaking to one of the special effects technicians, he soon discovered that one of the dummy shells in the gun case was missing the slug from its tip. And in the detective's interview of this special effects person, it raised the possibility that the gun was loaded with the dummy bullet for a close-up shot. When the gun was unloaded, the slug had become dislodged from the dummy shell casing, leaving the tip remaining in the cylinder or in the barrel so when the blank round was then inserted, the pistol discharged exactly like a loaded firearm. The investigation also revealed that the gun had been loaded by the special effects person, not by Michael Massey, the actor who fired the weapon. The detective also asked several people on the set about the possibility of foul play, if there was any animosity or hard feelings towards Brandon, and he was told repeatedly that There were absolutely no signs of ill feelings towards him. Brandon's body had been flown to Jacksonville, North Carolina, where the autopsy was to be performed. And as the detective had suspected, a projectile, which appeared to be a bullet, was discovered lodged near Brandon's spine. His death, despite being caused by a gunshot wound, was ruled accidental. The film which had not been completed yet at the time of Brandon's death, would go on with the blessings of Brandon's mom and Brandon's fiance, Eliza Hutton, who, incidentally, Brandon was set to marry that April 17, 1993, in Ensenada, Mexico, once filming for The Crow had wrapped. Paramount Pictures had developed and financed the film initially, but wrote it off after Brandon's death. Entertainment Media Investment Corporation was created to finance the remaining production, utilizing new, at the time, CGI and body doubles for Brandon. It was the beginning, opening scenes of the film that hadn't been completed yet, so those were rewritten, and the apartment scene, the one in which Brandon was gunned down, was remade using computer graphics from an earlier scene with Brandon. For example, The scene when Brandon's character first enters the apartment after digging himself out of the grave, they used footage of him walking through an alley in the rain by digitally compositing it into the doorway scene. The shot of Brandon falling from the window was made by digitally superimposing his face, complete with simulated blood onto a body double. The scene where Brandon puts on his makeup was filmed using a body double as well. The face in the shattered mirror was Brandon's own face but it was computer-altered to fit into the shards of the mirror. When the character named Sarah visits the apartment, Brandon's character's face is never seen by the viewer, as a body double was used in that scene also. Brandon was laid to rest on April 3, 1993, at the Lakeview Cemetery in Seattle, Washington, next to his father, in a plot that his mother, Linda, had originally reserved for herself. In October of the same year, Brandon's mother settled a negligence lawsuit that she'd filed against the filmmakers. She sued California-based CrowVision Incorporated and its parent company, Edward R. Pressman Film Corporation, and the producers of the film, the director, Alex Proyes, and J.B. Jones Incorporated, the company in which supplied the blanks and ammunition for the movie. Brandon's fiancé was also included in the settlement. In the more than 20 years since the crow hit the box office, it's been shrouded in mystery, controversy, and rumors. Many of them false, particularly the one surrounding Brandon's death. One of the rumors was that Brandon was shot during the huge gun battle scene that did make the final cut of the movie. This was false. He was shot during that scene that was a flashback of him walking into his apartment holding the bag of groceries, as I had detailed a little bit earlier. That's the scene where everything went wrong. There was also a rumor that Brandon had been shot in the head. This too was false. He was shot in the abdomen, the bullet hitting his spine. There was a paramedic on site who immediately began administering CPR, but Brandon ultimately would not recover from the massive blood loss he'd suffered. There is also a rumor that Brandon's actual death can be seen in the movie. And there's always probably going to be that one person that's going to point out a scene and say, that's where he died, that's where he died. Watch close and you can see him really die. But as far as I found, there is no actual footage of Brandon's death, at least that no one has ever been able to find in any dark corner of the internet. Those close to the making of the film have said the footage of Brandon's fatal shooting was destroyed. Another bit of conjecture, which might have some truth to it, is that Brandon's death could have largely been blamed on cost-cutting efforts. The use of guns in movies was prevalent throughout the entire making of The Crow, Brandon even mentioning it in an interview during one particular scene that he was shot at 60 or 70 times. The scene in which Brandon died was actually relatively simple compared to the other action sequences involving gunfire. But the mistake actually happened when the freelance arms expert was told by those in charge of the filming that he was no longer needed and that the prop expert could finish the remaining scenes. After the close-up shot of the gun being fired, the prop expert dry-fired the gun, which knocked the slug off an empty cartridge and into the gun's barrel. Then the gun was loaded by the prop expert with powerful blanks that, when fired, propelled that slug out of the barrel and directly into Brandon. It may also be worth mentioning that The Crow was actually plagued with accidents and mishaps. Beyond the obvious and most tragic death of Brandon, it started to feel like to some that something just did not want this movie to be made. Production had been beleaguered by so many disasters, it was starting to be referred to as the Curse of The Crow. On the first day of shooting in Wilmington, North Carolina on February 1st, 1993, a carpenter was severely burned on his face, chest, and arms when a live power line hit the crane in which he was working. For months following, he had difficulty talking and was facing at least two years of surgery and at least five years of therapy following that accident. On the very same day, that first day of filming, The movie's publicist was involved in a car accident in downtown Wilmington, and that very same night, a Crow equipment truck mysteriously caught fire. Then, there were just some bizarre incidents. A disgruntled artist and sculptor who had been working on the set apparently lost his temper and went berserk on the back lot and proceeded to drive his car through the studio's plaster shop. He was kind of written off as brilliant, eccentric, but impossible to deal with, and he was fired. In another incident, a construction worker slipped, and when he did, a screwdriver went straight through his hand. Also, in another incident, a stuntman was injured when he accidentally fell through the roof on set. Following that, a drive-by shooting incident had taken place very close to the Crow location in downtown Wilmington, so close that the shooter was actually stopped and apprehended when he was trapped by the movie set location's temporary barriers then on march 13th 1993 a storm destroyed all of the crows sets i looked it up and this wasn't just any storm this was known as the 1993 storm of the century aka 93 superstorm aka the great blizzard of 1993 it was a large, cyclonic storm that formed over the Gulf of Mexico on March 12. It is notable for its intensity, massive size, and far-reaching effects. At its maximum, the storm stretched from Canada to Honduras, a distance of approximately 3,000 miles or 4,800 kilometers. The cyclone moved through the Gulf of Mexico, through the eastern part of the United States, and then on to Canada. It finally dissipated in the North Atlantic on March 15th. 10 million households lost power, 40% of the population of the United States had been affected by the storm, and a total of 208 people were killed. Brandon himself had been injured after an onset accident prior to the fatal one. It involved supposedly safe breakaway glass You know that stuff used in movies for actors to smash through without getting injured. Yet, somehow, when Brandon smashed through some of this breakaway glass early on filming a scene where he was supposed to enter a shop after a fight scene, he was actually cut by the glass. The actor who was in the scene with him immediately became worried, who recalled saying to Brandon, Don't pull a Vic Morrow on this film. Don't endanger yourself as Vic Morrow was still fresh in people's minds. How prophetic that statement would end up being. I mean, really? Breakaway glass? The stuff that's made to look like glass and break like glass, but is supposed to be completely safe for an actor to break through? And Brandon still injured himself doing that? I mean, if that wasn't a bad omen, I don't know what, of all of these incidents were. And then there's Michael Massey, the actor who fired that gun at Brandon. Only one can imagine the torment he endured, forever being remembered as the guy who killed Brandon Lee. He never did see that movie. And he only spoke one time publicly about the accident, albeit briefly, in 2007. Nobody ever, ever blamed him in any way, shape, or form for the accident. But I'm certain that it didn't make living with that burden any easier. But you should know that he was more than that guy who killed Brandon. He did take a year off of filming After the Crow, in which he played the role of fun boy. In 1995, he played a cop in Tales from the Hood. He also provided the voice for the villain Spellbinder in Batman. He appeared on 24 as villain Ira Gaines. He was the voice of Bruce Banner in the animated film The Ultimate Avengers and the sequel. He appeared in the movie Seven along with Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman. He had a role in David Lynch's Lost Highway. He also made appearances in HBO's Carnival, The X-Files, Revelations, Criminal Minds, Law and Order, Flash Forward, Supernatural, and Rizzoli and Isles. He also played the role of Gustav Fiers in 2012 and 2014, The Amazing Spider-Man. And this was only a handful of his appearances on television and in the movies. He married in 1997 and had two children, Jack and Lily. He and his wife also owned a clothing boutique in Los Angeles. Michael Massey died October 20th, 2016, after battling stomach cancer. He was 64 years old. I am going to end this episode with a blog post I read about what, if any, is Brandon Lee's legacy. I ran the idea of this through my head over and over again as I wrote this but I kind of just got lost in all the back and forth when it came to Brandon and what his life truly meant. If he had separated himself from his famous father, if he had gone on to do any more movies other than just The Crow, what would The Crow have meant to us if he hadn't died? Would it be the cult film that it has become if not for that? Is it his greatest work because it's good or because he died? Would it not have been as good if he hadn't? I am much too focused on Brandon and the crow to be able to articulate what Brandon meant to the world because I'm so focused on that singular aspect of his short time on this earth. So, I will leave you with this blog that I read on the Brandon Lee movement. No legacy is so rich as honesty. William Shakespeare. Brandon Lee's death at the age of 28 in 1993, after a handful of films under his belt, was tragic for a number of reasons. A legacy when someone dies can be attributed to an opulent amount of things, possessions, kinship, equity, work history. The term legacy when Brandon is mentioned is often inputted as The crow namely because it was not only his last film, but the film he was working on when he was killed. However, let's ponder this question without bias. What is Brandon Lee's true legacy? Certainly his last film, The Crow, is noteworthy as a part of his enduring legacy, as well as his other films such as Rapid Fire. Nevertheless, the quality of Brandon Lee's life and the passion in which he lived his life is far more significant in regards to his worth as a human being than some of his cinematic contributions. As Billy Graham once said, the legacy we leave is not just in our possessions, but in the quality of our lives. When considering the question about what Brandon's true legacy might be, there also is the idea that we must explore the complete picture including his family legacy, his cinematic achievements, the quality of his life, and his own contributions to humanity. Brandon Lee's father Bruce died in 1973 at the height of his career, yet many fans of Bruce Lee often say that his legacy is not his films, but in the teachings of his founded martial art, Jeet Kune Do, and the philosophy that he left behind. In recent times, athletes in sports, from boxing to mixed martial arts, have referenced Bruce Lee as a reputable inspiration on them all. All of these elements of Bruce Lee's legacy, his son Brandon had to learn to come to terms with while rising his own achievements. Brandon started his career in stage, then in film, and then was immediately compared to his famous father. At the early part of his career, Brandon went to great lengths to separate himself from his famous father's fame. Many interpreted this to claim that Brandon was not proud of who his father was, especially in the Eastern culture where there is great pride in following the parental figure's footsteps. Brandon was always proud that he was Bruce Lee's son, yet wanted to achieve his own dream on his own terms without using the family name. There were many years where on the outside, Brandon seemed, to the public observer, rebellious, even arrogant about the name and the legacy he inherited from his father. He learned to deal with the legacy without bitterness. Brandon embraced the study of his father's art and felt more comfortable marrying together martial arts with his unique passion for acting, which his father did not have. Brandon, in doing this, created his own legacy and his own mark on the world. Brandon never used or exploited his father's name, a character trait that became part of his own legacy that he left behind. Brandon Lee's last films Rapid Fire and The Crow are important when examining his enduring legacy. Both of these films exhibited parts of Brandon's own creative ideas and talents beyond what the public saw on screen. Had Brandon's accident not have occurred, would these films all these years on be counted as part of his legacy? It's debatable, but these films did in fact help Brandon achieve something for himself as an actor and as a creative force that audiences probably can never understand. For Brandon, the quality of his work was important to him. He wanted to do the best with what he had a perfectionist, you might say. Brandon Lee's films aren't his legacy. They are simply a part of it. In a nutshell, Brandon Lee was not his character's. While he certainly made the parts his own and worked with the creative teams on his last two films to ensure that the finished script was something that he could live with, at the end of the day, he was different from his character's. Brandon was willing to do what he could to make sure that the project the audience saw was of quality. His cinematic legacy may lie also in the ideas and drive that pushed his art, not just the end product. There were several milestones of Brandon Lee's life that, as an objective observer, are fairly obvious, One of those is clearly the period in his life when he decided to stop carrying the impossible burden of being Brandon Lee, son of Bruce, and to start living his life in the most authentic way possible. Brandon admitted in his later years that he lived with a huge chip on his shoulders and was not living his own life. This aspect of his life was ruled by fear, fear of expectations. The other important milestone was finding the balance in his life where he could be who he wanted and to feel the kind of acceptance that eluded him all his life. Brandon's whole disposition evolved from confused and rebellious, angry young actor to a more confident, happy, and serenely calm actor who would accomplish his dream no matter what, but on his terms. It was throughout these changes in his life that his unique characteristics helped to part of his legacy. He was very conscious of the legacy he wanted to contribute to and eventually leave behind and, of course, he had no idea that it would be so soon. Yet, against the odds, he achieved the success in his own unique way, away from his father and away from what others expected of him. He belonged to himself. Humanity became very meaningful for Brandon. He wanted to be seen as an individual, not because he was related to someone, nor even for what he could do. What he sought is what all human beings do, a sense of belonging and acceptance. The journey Brandon went on was often long and painful, yet at the tender age of 28, he somehow was able to achieve what he once thought was impossible. When he died, there was a huge amount of grief expressed from people you wouldn't normally expect. Hollywood insiders and executives. Brandon was well regarded as someone who treated everyone he came into contact with with respect and compassion, and as long as they treated him the same way, it stayed that way. He is remembered certainly as someone who loved acting and had a great talent, but more importantly as someone who, who was a wonderful human being, who was decent, generous, and kind. Brandon wasn't perfect, and no one is, but he tried to be the best person he could be, and in one of his last interviews discussed the importance of loyalty and goodwill in human relationships. As an actor, he wanted to explore the many facets of human nature that can both empower and destroy the psychology of the individual. There are aspects of Brandon's life that fans don't know about, and hopefully will at some point. But if his legacy has one element to it, shouldn't it be his humanity and the kind of inspiration he ultimately gave to others? No one knows what a legacy will look like after death. Brandon Lee's legacy is rich, not an asset, but in heart. Next time you hear someone talk about the legacy of Brandon Lee, remember that this at the very core is what a young man who was just a man with a dream, he achieved what he did because of his own talents, not because of his genes. The true worth of a man is not always in what they produce, but in many of the little things. In other words, the trivial matters that eventually count as the most significant in life. Like Shakespeare did once write, it is the honesty that an individual brings to their life that a true net worth will be judged on. And that brings this very special edition of California Dreaming to a close. And this will also bring my entries for my drawing to a close as well. I will announce the winner on social media sometime this week and also on the next episode. I am going to be drawing by Twitter handles and I'll message you and tweet at you but if you don't get back to me for whatever reason or you want to forfeit your win I'll draw a runner-up and a runner-up to the runner-up until I find someone who will take my prize. Please join me on Facebook like the page and join the discussion and follow me on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. Instagram is where I really like to share pictures relevant to the cases I cover each week. California Dreaming is proudly a part of the Orbital Jigsaw Network of podcasts. We have joined forces with an eclectic group of shows to bring you a wide variety of podcasts across several different genres, including The Concession Stand, Busted Wide Open, Super Nerds UK, The Dirty Bits, Historium, Is This Adulting, for one owned Film Roast, and we have two new additions to our podcast family. One I told you about last week, Vox Arcana, a Dungeons and Dragons podcast, and the Orbital Jigsaw Podience. You know I've been asking you to check out the Facebook page, and well, now it's going to be a podcast too. The founder and CEO of Orbital Jigsaw, Nick Howell, is bringing a show specifically to podcasters or aspiring podcasters with interviews of some of the top vendors and developers in podcasting, some inside scoops and behind-the-scenes information, why things happen the way that they happen, and the insider tips on how to best make your show a success. Listen to the introductory episode, especially if you're a host or thinking about becoming one, at www.orbitaljigsaw.com and click on the link on the homepage. And as always, thank you again for listening. Good luck to all of you entered into my Twitter drawing. And until next time, sweet dreams.